So if you remember where we're at in the book of Acts, Paul, the apostle, has been on several missionary journeys, and he's, it seems, at the end of his road. He's been traveling, he's uh, gathered this offering, he's back in Jerusalem, he's brought this offering from all the churches that are abroad to bless the church at Jerusalem, and when he gets there, basically the, the James and the, and the Jewish Christians there that are in the church in Jerusalem ask Paul, they say, hey Paul, why don't you, uh, we're a little bit afraid because some of the things that we have heard you've been teaching have been against the law and against the temple and and so just so these Jewish Christians that were around don't feel like you've abandoned your uh, Jewishism, your, your Judaism, we want you to pay for the vows of four men that have taken a Nazarite vow. And so Paul, rather than saying, absolutely not, I don't have to do that, he says, okay. And he pays for their vows. He even himself goes into the temple to be cleansed, to, to fulfill a vow himself. And Paul didn't have to do this, but he did it for love's sake because his heart was for the Jewish Christians. He didn't want to stumble any of them. And so Paul, while he's in there in the temple making this concession, hopefully to get a voice to be able to speak to these Jewish Christians and to bless them, to teach them the word of God and how it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, while he's in the temple making this offering to kind of appease them, if you will, they get aggravated with them because they see a man in the temple by the name of Trophimus. He's from Ephesus, where Paul has just returned from, and he is in the court of the Jews. And no Gentile was allowed in the court of the Jews. And so while he's in the court of the Jews, they see Paul there, they see Trophimus, they make an assumption. And I know I've repeated this over and over again, but I need to teach myself as well that Assumption is the lowest form of communication. It's the worst because it, it's always wrong. 99.999% of the time it's wrong. And so what Paul does is he gets arrested. Well, they, he incites a riot basically. They start rioting against Paul. They start beating him because he's brought this Gentile and profaned the temple. He's, he's made it dirty by bringing in this, this lower class of human being in the Jewish mind. And so because he's done that, Paul is uh, basically getting ready to be beaten by these Jews. And at the, just in the nick of time, the garrison that's on the outside of the temple has these Roman guards and, and soldiers in there. And they kind of storm the castle, if you will, and they stop them from beating Paul. And they start questioning people. What's going on? Why is there no peace? Why is there all this chaos? Why is this riot started? And so basically, there's no answer. And so they take Paul, they put him in chains. Obviously, he's the one that stirred it up. And, and so they start to um, question him and they're going to examine him under scourging, just like they did Jesus, to get some words out of him, to find out what's happening. And Paul says, is it, is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman citizen? And of course, they question, well, how did you become a Roman citizen? You know, it cost me a lot, a lot of money to become a Roman citizen. How did you become one? And Paul says, I was born a Roman citizen. So because of his Roman citizenship, Paul has certain rights. And so because he calls on these rights, Paul is afforded basically protection from the Roman government. And the Roman soldiers are getting ready to take him and put him into a cell until they can find out what's going on. And Paul, in the midst of that, says, hey, why don't you let me speak to this crowd? And he does. 
he shares with them what his testimony is. Basically, he was once just as zealous as they were for the law, and he was even dragging people out of their homes that were following this Jesus character. But then on the way to Damascus, having permission from the Sanhedrin themselves, from the high priest, he had letters saying it's okay for this guy to drag out these Christians out of their homes and bring them to Jerusalem to be put in jail and punished. He said, but while I was on the way to Damascus, God humbled me on the road. He knocked me down. His presence was so obvious to me that I couldn't help but throw myself down on the ground. And at that point, God changed my perspective because he asked me, why are you persecuting me, Paul? And so Paul basically just shows them from that point on, I began to serve Jesus, recognizing that he was the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Old Testament, that he was the fulfillment of all the letters and all the things that were written beforehand. He was the fulfillment of the law. We no longer have to approach God based on the blood of bulls and goats, but Jesus Christ, he's our perfect sacrifice. And we can, in fact, trust in him for salvation, knowing that he can cleanse us of all of our sins. And so Paul is sharing this, and at the end he says, but God has called me to be an apostle, a sent one, to all the Gentile nations to share with them this same message. And they were listening to him all the way up to the point where, they said, where he said that he was sent to the Gentiles to share the good news. And at that point, they start rioting again. They start to try to beat Paul. The Roman soldiers say, hey, we've got to protect this guy. And so they didn't know what he was saying to them because he was speaking in Hebrew. And so they take him. They put him in captivity. They say, hey, um, what did you say to them? And Paul basically, you know, he doesn't say much. And then, so they save his life. And they put him in jail and he's going to be tried. And in order to figure out what was said they call the next day the Sanhedrin, which is the high council, the elders of Jerusalem, to question Paul, but not so much where they beat him, but where they question him in front of the Roman soldiers so maybe they can find out what he has done wrong to see whether or not he deserves punishment. And during that questioning, basically Paul drops a theological hand grenade in the middle of the group, knowing that one group believes in the resurrection, the other one rejects the resurrection. And so basically Paul says, it's because of the resurrection I'm being put to trial here. And so because of that, they start all arguing and basically nothing good comes out of it. And the Roman soldiers are still just as confused as why Paul's being rioted against. And so in the meantime, as they're trying to figure out what's going on, the next day, I guess, basically there's a conversation that goes on and there's 40 men that make a vow that we're not going to eat until we kill Paul the Apostle. And so um, these 40 men conspire against Paul and they talk to somebody. They say, hey, they talk to the high priest and the elders and they say, why don't you ask the Roman soldiers to bring Paul back into Jerusalem so we can question him. But while he's on the way to Jerusalem, we're going to kill him. We've taken a vow that we won't eat until he's dead. Someone hears this, God reminds Paul in a dream that night, hey, just as you've testified of me in Jerusalem, you're going to testify of me all the way to Rome. He encourages him. Because Paul at this point feels like he's really screwed up. Nobody's received his message. And so as all this is taking place, God takes care of his servants because he uses one of Paul's own relatives that we don't hear about in the Bible at all until 
chapter 23 last week where he comes up and he hears that there's this vow to kill Paul. He tells Paul, Paul tells him, you won't need to tell the Roman soldiers. And then the Roman soldiers come along, or excuse me, the leader of the Roman soldiers, the centurion, he says, okay, well, if they're going to try and kill him, we're going to send him to a different town so we can get a fair trial. Kind of like what happens when somebody in a local community is incarcerated because allegedly they've killed somebody or done something that's very, everyone knows about it. They take them to a different town to try them so they get a fair trial rather than basically a lynch mob. So through the protection of the Roman government, he is taken from Jerusalem to Caesarea to be tried before a man by the name of Felix. He's the governor. And so that's where we find ourselves this week. Paul is being taken before the the Roman governor of this province there in Caesarea. And he's been given a letter by Claudius Lysias to procure his safety to Caesarea. So the letter starts in chapter 23, verse 26, where it's written, Claudius Lysias, he's writing who it's from first. That's how they would write their letters. He says, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. He leaves out the part where they bound him unlawfully and were getting ready to scourge him. You know, it's kind of funny how people write, rewrite history as if they did everything perfectly. And, uh, but we know that wasn't the case. But he says, verse 28, When I wanted to know the reason why they accused him, I brought him before their council. That was the Sanhedrin. Verse 29, I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. So he's shortened to the point. He's very cordial. He rewrites things a little bit to make himself look good because he's subservient to this governor. And then he basically says, I sent Paul to you to be tried, and I also charged his accusers, basically like a subpoena. I sent them to uh, you know, basically state the charges before you, because I have no reason that he should be punished or killed. So you're, I'm, I'm appealing it to you so that you can make a good judgment. So then, verse 31 says, Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, they took Paul. They brought him by night to Antipatris. This is on the way. And the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him. Up to Antipatris was basically the most dangerous part of the journey. But once they got past that dangerous part, they left it to basically the cavalry to take him the rest of the way. They didn't need to send everybody with them. And so the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. Verse 33, when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province Paul was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. So his passage has been given to him safely. He's now basically under the the hands of uh, Felix and he's going to be tried. But Felix says to him, I will hear your case 
when your accusers are here. So in chapter 24, we start. It says, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. I find this interesting because who does it say that they had charged to go up to Caesarea with Paul? His accusers. But we'll find out later that his accusers didn't show up. This is not going to be a fair trial. What they've done is they've sent Ananias, the high priest, they've sent the Sanhedrin, those who were in the elders of Israel, of Jerusalem, and Tertullus. Who's Tertullus? Well, first of all, he's a guy, I can't say his name very well, but Tertullus is basically like a high-priced lawyer. He's going to come in, he's got the golden tongue, he's going to say all the right things that you'd need to say before basically a high-level government official. So they're bringing in the big guns against Paul here. They want to make sure that this trial goes well because they're tired of Paul. They want to shut him up. And so they send in this high-priced lawyer. It says, when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation. So he's going to speak for them. But what I want you to notice is those that had accused Paul originally are nowhere to be found. Where are your accusers, Paul? It makes me think of what happened to the woman who was caught in the act of adultery in the gospel accounts. The Pharisees and a group had gathered this woman while she was caught in the act of adultery. Find it interesting also they didn't bring the man that was also in the act of adultery but then brings her before Jesus and says, hey Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, what are we gonna do with her? And so they were trying to catch him, not doing what the law said he should do. And so what did Jesus do? Well, it's a famous story. He leans down and he starts writing in the sand. Now we don't know what he wrote, the Bible is silent on that. Apparently it wasn't as important as what happened. Because all of those accusers that surrounded this woman, by the time he got done writing in the sand, all the accusers had left. They were no longer there. And so what did Jesus say? He said, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, they've all gone. And he said, famous words, neither do I condemn you. Condemnation drives you away. But he did speak some words of conviction which brings us close to God. He says, go and sin no more. He doesn't say, you know, do what's right in your own eyes. He says, what you were doing is wrong. Go and sin no more. You were in sin. They were right. The way they handled it, not so good. But I love how the good judge, what he does is he deals with the person and he says, go and sin no more. He shows mercy, grace. Doesn't give her what she does deserve which is mercy, and he gives her what she does not deserve, forgiveness. Well, the world's courts don't work that way. What happens is there's no accuser there, but the judge still goes on with the trials if everything's fine. I hate that. But God's going to use it for his purposes. Verse 2 says, When he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing through seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, 
with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. So he starts by lathering on the compliments. Except compliments are usually true. Flattery, however, is to gain something. Beware of people who flatter. This man is laying on the flattery to prepare this other man to hear his words and to be softened. And I think it's interesting because oftentimes we, we do the same thing and don't even realize it. We want someone to be more likely to listen to us and so we'll kind of lay on some compliments. Compliments are not a bad thing, but if they're not true, they're flattery and they're empty words. So beware. But he starts it by basically blowing a bunch of hot air. And I love this because you're going to see the contrast between this Tertullus and what Paul has to say. Paul doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't flatter. He says things. So <clears throat> verse 4 says, Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man to be a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. In other words, he's causing division and chaos. He says, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now notice in verse 5 that this is the one thing that he's charged with that is true. He is a ringleader. He is a leader of the Christian church. They call it a sect, but he's going to tell them later, this sect that they refer to is what we call the way. And it's because Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple and we seized him. And this is the thing that he was captured for. He had, according to them, brought this man into the temple, Trophimus. And he wanted to judge him according to our law. We wanted to judge him according to our law. Verse 7, but the commander Lysias, this is Claudius Lysias that had sent him up here, the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain or figure out all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. I, I kind of picture this with Tertullus kind of laying out the case, laying out the accusations, flattering this governor. And when he gets done, he basically says, this is my case. And then the leaders of Jerusalem come up and go, yeah, yeah, just like that. That's what he did. We agree. You know, they, they really don't have much to say themselves. So verse 10, Paul begins to defend himself. But notice the things that he has to say. It says, Then Paul, after the governor, had nodded to him to speak, answered. So Paul went with due course. He knew the, the trial and, and what was the proper etiquette. He didn't rush in. He waited to be called upon. He wasn't acting really quickly and just, Hey, no, that's not true. He, he waited for the, the governor to look at him. He says there, he answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. 
And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, in other words, nor in stirring up the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city itself. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. He says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. This thing they've accused me of, being a ringleader of this thing they call the sect, is called the way. And yes, I worship God according to this way, through Jesus Christ. He says, I believe all that is written in the law and in the prophets. And I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, Paul's giving his defense, but in the same time, I love this, because if you're ever defending yourself in a proper way, the things that you have to say will also teach those who are hearing you. He's sharing things about his relationship with God that maybe Felix doesn't even know. He's told him, Felix, I'm glad you're hearing my case because you've been a governor for a while. You know the customs of the Jews. We're going to find out that Felix's own wife is in fact a Jew herself. She was raised in the culture. Now, we're going to find out that she's not a devout Jew by any means because Felix is her husband and they're living in an adulterous relationship. But the interesting thing to me here is that Paul says here that we have hope in a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. This would undo any belief that people believe that, well, if you don't believe in God, then you just die in nothing but there will be a resurrection and that our bodies will live on forever whether we follow the Lord or not. Some for eternal punishment and damnation, some for everlasting life with God. And so Paul just, this is just what rolls out of him as he's defending himself because it's where his hope truly lies. And he doesn't lather on a bunch of flattery because though he does probably have some fears about being incarcerated and perhaps even killed, his hope is in the Lord. And he's trusting him, the God of his salvation, to be his defense. And so Paul says, we, I, because I believe in this hope of the resurrection, I myself always strive. He does try. It's not like he's just resting in God and not doing anything to add to his faith. He says, I always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God, and also, as a result, toward men. So, I had a couple of verses I wanted to share with you in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Paul speaks about this. He's just talked about assurance of salvation and the resurrection in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And he says there in verse 6, he says, So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, he says, well pleased rather to be absent from the body, which means to be present with the Lord. Therefore, verse 9, because of this hope that we have, 
He writes, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, whether we're in the presence of the church or in the presence of other believers or not, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one day will receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror or the fear of the Lord, this isn't like, this is a healthy fear that keeps us from sin. Uh, Proverbs actually says that the fear of the Lord causes us to hate sin. It's, a, a, it's just like the fear of um, fire that will keep your kids from putting their hands in something that's hot. It's a healthy fear that keeps us safe. He says, knowing therefore, verse 11, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men but we are well known to God and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So he talks about the, the judgment that will happen after death. The judgment of the just and the unjust. And though we will not see the white throne of judgment that judges whether or not we go to hell because we are in Christ, we will still experience judgment of the deeds that we've done in the body. But this is not going to be the one that sends us to hell. This is going to be what judges our works. What have we done with our salvation? What have we done with this life that God has given us to live everlasting? Have we served him or have we built up works that lead to wood, hay, and stubble? Will they be works of faith or works of the flesh? And based on those works doesn't mean that we'll be sent to eternal punishment. It means if we've done works that have led to other people come to know the Lord, works that have been works of the Spirit. Basically, what the Lord does is He rewards us. There are crowns that He will award to those who have been faithful for what they've known about the Lord. And those crowns, I love it because these aren't crowns that we're going to all brag to each other about. There's going to be a time where we all walk past Jesus and the rewards that we've earned by being faithful in the body to Him, we're going to throw to His feet because we recognize that it was all because of him living in us that we were ever able to do anything. Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 says that it's Christ in me that is the hope of glory. And I love that because it's not up to our plans, it's his plans, it's what he wants to use us for. And those rewards that we earn, we always feel like, Lord, I can't give you enough. And at that point, we'll be able to say, I, this is what I have to give you. What you gave me, I'm going to just give it back to you because it was all you doing it through me. And so Paul says it's, it's that judgment. He who has this hope, 1 John says, purifies himself just as he is also being purified by God. God purifies, he cleanses our lives, but he also says, I want you to take steps towards being pure, making right decisions. So that was kind of a caveat. Also it says in Ecclesiastes, you know, uh, Solomon made this ecclesiastical search. You know, what is the meaning of life? What's the purpose for man living this life under the sun? And in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, uh, verse 13, he comes to the conclusion after he goes through this whole search. And I always tell, especially young men that are striving to be, you know, glorious and build their own little kingdoms. I'm always telling them, look, if you want to ascribe to doing all you can and getting all you can in this world, take a note from Solomon who had all the affluence, all the money, all the wives, all the concubines. He, he sought pleasure in every area of life that anybody ever could. 
And yet at the end of his search, in his sorrow, when he had screwed up enough by trying to experience it all, in verse 13 it says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is man's all. This is the purpose of life. Fear God and keep his commandments. And then he says in verse 14, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. I don't know about you guys, but that is convicting. But Paul says, because we have the hope of the resurrection, that we're going to be face to face with the Lord, we've got to keep that truth in mind so that we don't get distracted by so many other things that won't actually matter in eternity. And then there's one more passage I wanted to go to in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. The writer of Hebrews there talking about just basically how we can harden our hearts against the Lord. But then he comes to the conclusion there. Chapter 4, verse... I got a new Bible, so I'm not used to where it's at on the page. He tells them in verse 12, Hebrews 4, 12, he says, The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You ever have one of those bad dreams where you wake up and you're in front of a crowd and you're speaking and you don't have any clothes on? You're like, how did I even get here? And it's just this, it's this awkward, uncomfortable mess of a moment. And I think that he uses the word there, naked, to make you feel uncomfortable. He says all things are open and naked before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account one day. And so on that same thing, Paul is sharing his testimony, he's defending himself, but the things that he's saying, no doubt, are going to give conviction, hopefully, to those that he's speaking to. Because remember, he's not only defending himself, he's also giving a defense for the hope that lies within him, because he's speaking before a Roman leader. And so God's going to use him to be a conviction. The Holy Spirit, when it was sent, when he was sent by Jesus, Jesus said it would do, he would do three things. Convict the world of Judgment, convict the world of righteousness, and convict the world of salvation, that Jesus is the only way. And so, that's I'm done with my rabbit trail. Verse 17, Paul continues, it says, Now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with a tumult. And they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Going back to that note I made at the beginning that Paul's accusers didn't even show up for this trial. All these high-level you know, leaders showed up, but his accusers didn't show up. He says, if, if they had something against me, they should have been here to testify against me because at this point you guys have no evidence against me. Or else, verse 20, let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. 
In other words, he's kind of conceding. He's like, maybe that wasn't the right thing to do. I kind of just dropped a bomb so I would draw everybody's attention away from the, the trial itself and the questioning. Uh, if they've got that against me, then you're right. I probably shouldn't have said that. I like that about Paul. He's honest. He's like, hey, I, I fail sometimes. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. In other words, I want to talk to him a little bit, get a little of his input, and then we'll make a decision. So he commanded the centurion, the leader of a hundred, to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. See, Felix is seeing here, hey, this guy, I don't have a whole lot on him, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go easy on him. He might be an innocent man and I don't want to be, you know, basically guilty of treating him unjustly. So I want to contrast between the ungodly prosecution and Paul's defense. The ungodly prosecution used flattery, they used slander, and they also used false witnesses. That's what they do. It's their MO. And many times they win. Whether it's right or not, they win. But what did Paul do? What, what was his defense? His defense was always this. Look at my life. It's an open book. Look at my actions. I've heard somebody ask the question before. If your Christianity was on trial, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being guilty of being a Christian? Paul basically says here, if you want to consider whether or not I am who I say I am, look at my life. Here it is. Here's the evidence. It's my life. If you want to scrutinize it, if you want to test it, there's some fault there, don't doubt. But what I will say is that my conscience is clean, and if I'm guilty of what I've done, then put me to death because I'm, I'm right before God. I'm not worried about it. And Paul didn't pull any punches. And at the same time, he was very flat and outright with the people that he shared with. And what we're going to see next week, I was going to get there this week, but for time's sake, I'm going to cut it short. What we're going to see next week is Paul is going to turn from being prosecuted by Felix or by the Tertullus, the, the lawyer, and he's going to turn it and he's going to start talking directly to Felix about sin about righteousness and about judgment. He's going to use this opportunity. He's done defending himself. Now he's going to turn the tables and he's going to start sharing about self-control and about righteousness and about judgment. And Felix is all of a sudden not going to be the judge, but he's going to be the one that's feeling like he's being judged. He's going to experience the fear of the Lord. He's going to feel naked in the eyes of God and we're going to see how he responds to the gospel. And so... Uh, that being said, let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are a righteous judge. That uh, just like Jesus, when he was there with the woman who had been caught in the very act of sin, adultery. He didn't just start accusing. He didn't call in false witnesses. He listened. And he actually started writing things down. And I guess it's my take and... I don't know if this is true or not. It seems like he almost started writing down the Ten Commandments and those people started disappearing. All of a sudden, 
He who is without sin, throw the first stone. Uh, none of them were without sin. And so, Lord, we are all guilty of sin, but you, being the righteous judge, being the perfect one, being the only begotten of the Father, you are a righteous judge, and you stand next to us, and you tell us, go and sin no more. And because of our own testimony, many people will either be brought to the realization that you're real, or they'll be stumbled and sent away, jaded and angry that we're hypocrites. And Father, uh, we know that you're not, uh, you're okay with relating to us even though we fail. But I pray that you would take each one of our lives, that you'd help us to live for the hope of the resurrection, and therefore be convicted daily to, to spend time at your feet and keep our slate clean. Not so much because it saves us, but because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Father, we are your ambassadors. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says, We are therefore your ambassadors of Christ Jesus. We are your representatives until you return. Lord, take our lives and scrutinize them through the lens of Scripture. Remove all the junk. Purify our lives so that when we are squeezed and maybe even put to trial or someone accuses us of something, we'd be able to say, I trust in the Lord and uh, because of him, I am who I am today. Lord, help us to be what we say we are. Help us to be Christians, little Christs, so that the world who is blinded by sin will be brought and cut to the quick and reminded that they will be responsible to you one day, the good judge. Father, purify our lives so others might see you living in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing one.